extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul from Sheol. You have restored my life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Sorry, I gotta blink it out. Okay. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But you hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. For you have turned my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing of your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here at Free City, and uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you're here on cookout day. And uh, Ethan already told you we decided to cook out regardless of what the weather did, um, and uh, we don't care about flood warnings, and so hang on to your kids. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, we're really glad you're here, and uh, we've got a lot of work to do uh, on Psalms uh, 30, and so let me, let me pray for us, and let's get started. Uh, Father, Lord, as we look um, at a psalm of David that he wrote to dedicate a temple uh, that he never saw, um, Lord, that he wrote in faith. And Lord, we see so many things. We see uh, the dangers of when, when I think I've got this, when I think it, I'm handling it. We see the blessedness of your grace and your mercy in that when you turn your face to me, I am drawn up, I am established, but outside of your presence, um, I sink. And so, Lord, I pray for help. I pray as we um, unpack this, um, Lord, we find uh, your help where you need to draw us up. Um, we find that place. Um, and we join you there, and we just ask, Lord, would you lift me up here? Um, and we wait, and we listen, and we expect for you to do the proper work that you love to do, which is saving, blessing, and giving grace. Lord, I pray that we would experience that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm supposed to give uh, this announcement again. Uh, you'll have it for at least the next two weeks that... Uh, you're not supposed to get your kids, I mean, you can get your kids anytime you want to, but you're not supposed to get your kids uh, until after the benediction, so you hear uh, our announcements, um, mostly so you stop asking my wife what's coming up, uh, because she was missing all the announcements and she didn't know. Um, so there you go, I gave it. Hey, the background of the text of Psalm 30 is somewhat uh, disputed. Um, you know, as long back as you can look, if you look at the superscript, you're going to see where it says, A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. 
And so that is very, very old. That goes with the psalm. Uh, it was added, I mean, David didn't write that, but it was added um, a long, long time ago in the canon. And so this has always been ascribed to David as a dedication for the temple to come. Uh, but there, there's a problem with that. And the problem is David never saw the temple. Like if, you, if you've read in Chronicles, in First Kings, you have some of it there, uh, Chronicles and Kings, you, you hear the story uh, David, he wanted, he built his house and he set aside materials and he wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but God stopped him. And he says, listen, you have a reputation of war. There is blood on your hands. I don't want you to build my house. He says, your son, Solomon, your son will build my house. And so then on two different occasions, so First Chronicles 22 and then in, uh, I think, chapter 27 again, David, you know, commends, he, he talks to his son, he says, listen, I wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God said no, because there's so much blood on my hands. My reputation is that of a man of war. And so I have all the supplies set aside. They're all here for you to build. And then he speaks to the people and he says, listen, my son is going to build a temple. Join in him. And so, you know, a lot of historians, what they say is, as David was setting this aside and preparing for something that he would never see, he wrote this by faith. He wrote this by faith for when God's house is established, for there would be a place with like a foundation that God would come to meet with man, a place that we would go and we would stand before the Lord. And it was a foretelling of a greater faith. But I mean, even in that, like, it kind of seems weird. Like, if you look at the progression of the psalm, I mean, it has all these, like, really incredible elements. Like, if you just look at it, so kind of an overview. Like, in this song, we have fear. Fear of enemies, sickness, and death. And I think we can relate to that. Like, we all fear getting some sort of report from a doctor that has these two words, cancer and terminal. In this song, we have fear. In this song, we have sadness for the aftermath of what those enemies can bring. Like, don't you feel loss? You know, we even looked at a little bit of C.S. Lewis last week. Like, to love something or to love someone or to love anything is to open your life to be vulnerable. All those things will be taken from you. Like, your only choice is to, to rest with that vulnerability and to say, listen, to love is to loss. To love is to have sorrow. It is mounting and it will come. If I love people, I will lose them. If I love things, they will decay. If I love activities, I'm going to decay. And one day I won't be able to do them. It's getting more real to me. If I love people, things, or anything in this world, like I'm setting myself up for loss but your only other option, as C.S. Lewis says, is to wrap your heart with nothing. Let nothing come in. Put it in a casket. And there in the safety of bitterness, your heart will become impenetrable. But it'll become the reality of hell itself. This song that David writes to dedicate the coming of the temple, a place to meet with God, has fear. It has sadness. And it has pleading. 
Like it is pleading. It is a heartfelt plea for God to act and for God to move. There is great desperation. But then in like the great opposites of this, we also have words like joy, gladness, singing, dancing. And it's not mentioned here, but it's described resurrection. Like this is so bipolar. You know, when I, when I was studying this, Man, there were a couple times where I wanted to like give up on it and uh, just be like, oh, let's, let's talk about something else. Um, so I don't know how that makes you feel about the rest of the morning. But... <clears throat> but I think part of it was because it's so opposite. It's so bipolar. And it, I just kept thinking, I don't know if this was helpful or not, but I kept thinking about Sesame Street. And so before you had uh, Zoe and Elmo playing the opposite game, you had Bert and Ernie. This is in the 1900s. You had Bert and Ernie, and they were singing the opposite song. And everything was, that is opposite. And so you talk about this, you know, someone's quiet. and like, oh, but there's something that's opposite. And you would get loud. And that's what we see here. Like, let's just look at some of these verses. Look at verses one through three. Like, first you see this sinking. David is sinking into the pit. Sheol, you see that word, and death. Like, he's sinking, but then he's asking for this. Look at verse one. He's asking to be drawn up. And he actually declares it in verse one. He says, God, you drew me up. And so that's opposite. That is opposite. Sinking, drawing up, opposite. Look at verse five. You see God's anger and it lasts for a moment. But then you see his favor and it says it lasts for a lifetime. Moment, lifetime, anger, favor, opposite. Look at verse five again. Weeping and joy, morning and night. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Joy is opposite of weeping. Mourning is the opposite of night. That is opposite. Look at verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Opposite. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed, clothed me with gladness. Like, I don't know exactly what being clothed with gladness is, but it has got to be a lot better than being clothed with sackcloth. Opposite. This is showing God to be the ultimate optimizer. Someone who steps in and loves to change dark and dreary to bright and sunny. And we're just hoping he does that for the cookout. Someone who loves to step in and be the only possible answer for all that changes. Someone who comes in and resurrects what is there. Like I'm contending that this is mostly about the resurrection power over death that is impending upon us. He turns mourning to dancing. He turns sadness into joy. He turns sinking into rising, dying to healing, anger to favor. We serve a God who loves to work in the opposites. And there's two more opposites that we're going to spend the rest of the time really unpacking. It's the opposite of what we think is going to help us, and that is of self-sufficiency. But self-sufficiency actually brings uncertainty, certain uncertainty. And then maybe the greatest opposite, where it says, my Lord, my God, my helper. God who rules on high. 
but stoops down to be my helper. And so in normal fashion, I want to look at this passage under three ideas, really three words. Almost all of them are in the passage. And so the first one, um, suffering, prosperity, and helper God, all those are there. And so we'll see the first suffering. We're just going to talk about the certainty of suffering and just how this text unpacks it, just to really try to relate to us. How is suffering touching my life? That's verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to look at prosperity, but really the prosperity is describing the idea of control and self-sufficiency that we desperately long for. And that's going to be right toward the end, uh, verses 6 through 8. And then we're going to look at the gospel, that our only hope is a helper God. And so let's, let's just get busy. So first, suffering. Like this text talks about the certainty of suffering in this life. And so the first thing I just want to say is this doesn't talk about abstract suffering. This talks about very personal suffering. Like look at all the I's, me's, and my's. Look at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foals rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, for you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. This is not generic. This is not a report that maybe you know, David can relate to or maybe he can't relate to. This is felt. This is directly experienced. Like this is personal. It's not abstract. See, when suffering's personal, it really gets our attention. You see, we see suffering on the news all the time. Like, that's the only thing the news reports. I mean, something great could happen. Like, I don't know about that. But, like, something bad happens, and we, you know, extrapolate it. We see so much suffering. But, like, let's be honest. I don't know what this says about us. Like, we don't respond to it much. Like, we see horrible suffering, and maybe we kind of get mad about it. And, you know, social media exists, so we can post something so people think we actually care about it. But we don't do anything about it. It doesn't move us. This idea of generic suffering. But what happens when those same things you see on the news, what happens when it touches your life or the people that you love? You see, one is kind of a generic cry of like, I don't know, this is kind of bad. And then one is a cry that says, my God, draw me up. My God, oh my God. And so this suffering is personal. This suffering feels like an inescapable descent. Look at verse 3. It says, my soul from Sheol. And then the other phrase, and among those who go down to the pit. Like where it says down, it's not like they went down. It's a going down. It's a participle. They're still going. Now, like the word Sheol, like it doesn't exactly mean the idea of hell but it's pretty close. It's the grave. It's the underworld. It later gets developed in the New Testament idea of hell. And so like, it's this idea of a destination that is separated from everything that I want, everything that I love, and this, this participle of going down to the pit. Like, have you ever been caught up in suffering where it just keeps getting worse? Like you think you have a foothold on something. You think it's actually going to turn the corner and it feels like you just keep slipping off and it's just a constant descent. Like someone you love just keeps getting sicker and sicker. You know, there, there's a kind of movie out there where like everything goes wrong and it's a comedy. I can't watch him. 
Like, it is so stressful to me. Like, I'm watching it, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, why are we even watching this? This could be my life, you know? And it just gets worse and worse. And this constant descent, sometimes that's how suffering feels. It pulls and it pulls and it pulls. And it doesn't respond to your cry for mercy. That's what David is describing. And then it also tells us this. Suffering will certainly come to you. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now that, there, there's a twofold promise there. Like on the first one, on one hand, it's exceedingly good news. Like there's an opposite of the night and it's morning. And the Bible tells us that mercies are new every morning. Like this will not last forever. On the bad side, weeping will happen. It will happen. Like I just kind of searched like the New Testament for how much Jesus and the disciples and the apostles, how much they talked about like you should expect suffering. It was overwhelming. I mean, verse after verse in every part of the scripture, whether we're looking at the Gospels, whether we're looking in Acts, whether we're looking in the epistles, every part of scripture, this warning that's like, hey, listen, suffering's going to happen. It's coming. I mean, Jesus would say it real plainly. Hey, they treated me like this. They go, they're going to treat you. I mean, he would just say it like suffering is going to happen. And yet we always act so surprised when it does. You know, if you're in the Bible reading 1 Thessalonians, we just read 1 Thessalonians. Nod your head so I feel like you read your Bible. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says this, Let no one be moved by these afflictions. That means suffering. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. Like that's, that's, that's bad news. I mean, it says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as come to pass and just as you know. And so Paul, when he was writing to the church in Thessalonica, people he loved, he was like, I know you see us suffering. We told you it was going to happen. We told you it was destined. And he's like, suffering's going to hit you too. See, I feel like so much of pastoring people, and I don't mean like just like this, pastoring people. I mean like loving people, walking with people, like your city group, like pastoring people. So much of it is preparing people to suffer well. Good news Sunday, right? Um, but it is. You see, if you love deeply, you open your life to suffering. We just earlier this week, we watched Up with our family. And man, I, I, if you can watch Up and not cry, I don't know what's wrong with you. I, like, you, there's something wrong with you. Like my kids, I don't think they really grab it. They didn't. They look at us. You know, Kinsey and I were looking at each other. I'm like, babe, whatever you want to do, man, your adventure. I'm in on it. You know, and, and uh, I mean, we're crying. I mean, so much suffering. You know, I mean, they meet. She breaks his arm. You know, I mean, young love. It's crazy like that. And then they they get married and they they get pregnant and they lose the baby and then she gets sick and she dies. And all along there was this thing of man, we want to go to. I think it was Victory Falls. Victoria Falls, Paradise Falls. Yeah, I was paying attention. I was crying. I couldn't see. I was like, it's terrible. Paradise Falls. And they never get there. And she dies. And like, he's having trouble with the contractors. They're trying to take his home. So, I mean, this is reasonable. Blows a 
a bunch of balloons and flies to Paradise Falls. But at the end of it, I'm going to, spoiler alert, cover your ears if you don't want to hear this. At the end of it, he finally opens the book and he's like, man, Ellie, I am so sorry. We never did it. We never made it there. We never did it. Life always got in the way. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And then he realizes after the adventure, she categorized all his life. Beauty in the suffering. And I think it hits me worse because Ellie looks just like Doreen. And so I'm like, oh, we have Doreen Diana. And so, I mean, it hit, you know, I don't know. But like, it's mingled in. Listen, the Bible is clear. We will suffer. There will be weeping. There will be heartache. And yet, I mean, Jesus was clear. Disciples, church, we'll suffer. There will be heartache. There will be loss. And when it hits us, man, we throw our hands up in the air like, well, I don't know where God is. The Bible is clear. David is clear. Suffering is certain to come. The night is certain to come. And then I'm going to work on this a little bit. Look at verse 4 and 5. I think it tells us something about suffering by talking about praise. It says, suffering and praise, it needs to be shared. And so in verse 4, it turns. And so after he says, man, you know, God, you know, extolled, God raised me up. You know, I was falling into the pit and I was dying. All kinds of bad things were happening. But he drew me up. Then he says in verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. He says, everyone gather in. He doesn't keep it private anymore. He says, gather in. Let's sing together because God drew us up. God acted. God came through. God was present. Let's do that. And I think that also extends to verses 1, 2, and 3, that we need to share sufferings. Like, that's the whole point of the church. Like, that's the whole point of, like, us finding strength in our weaknesses, like I think there's an element where God just miraculously does that, where he does that in our lives, where things happen in our lives, and it's along lines of our weaknesses, and so we can't take credit for it. But I think it's also about Galatians 6, of us sharing our weaknesses with one another so that we might, you know, bear burdens. I think it's about confessing our sins to one another that we might be healed. I think it's Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Like it's a part of the church life that we can weep with one another and we can rejoice with one another. And yet we're always so lured to not share our sufferings until they've passed. We're so lured not to share our sufferings until they pass, until they're over. You know, let me say two more things and then we're going to point number two, which is much shorter, I promise. In verse 5, the very part of it, first part of it, I think it teaches that suffering is not void of God's favor. And God's favor it is life itself. Look at verse 5. It says, for in his anger is but a moment. See, I think that means that God brings suffering into our lives. And we're going to see why when we talk about the, the illusion of prosperity and self-sufficiency. But God brings it into his lives. And that is but for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. Like a literal translation of that is more like a moment. It is his anger. But life 
is his favor. And so some translations don't span that out to say lifetime. They literally just say this, like we experience God's anger, but for a moment, suffering and affliction come, but for a moment. And, but literally his favor is life. In his favor is life itself. And so if God with his favor brings life, that means he has purpose in his sufferings also. And the New Testament loves to make that very, very clear. There is purpose in weeping and there is purpose in that. And I think the purpose only makes sense if resurrection, all of life, is res- if resurrection is real. And then one last thing I want to say on this section. Don't get too excited. There is ultimately only one way out of suffering. You have to be drawn up. You know, in verse 1, where it says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. That word is almost exclusively used uh, to describe, you know, throwing a bucket into a well and drawing it up. Yet in our suffering, we we think we can pull ourselves up. We think we can hang on and outlast it. But that's not what this is teaching. It's saying someone from the top has to reach down to pull up. Yeah, this week, um, we were working outside, and I... I got suckered into buying uh, some, some like sling rockets. I was like, oh, that'd be fun. And so I bought these rockets you kind of sling up in the air. And uh, it wasn't long until they got stuck on the roof. And so, um, I mean, I'm not going to let the roof stop me. The rainstorm's not going to stop us. The roof certainly is not going to stop. But the problem is I don't have a ladder tall enough to get on my roof safely. Um, so I have to back my truck up to my house, put the A-frame ladder up, and then kind of get up on the roof while my wife holds it saying, this is a bad idea. It's a $2 rocket. And I'm like, do you want our kids to go to college? You know what I mean? And so I get up on the roof. I get the rockets. I throw them down. And then coming down, I'm having pictures of Chevy Chase, you know, in Christmas vacation, falling and hanging on the rafter. And, you know, thinking like, that would be bad. You know, that'd be bad. But like, what would I do if that actually happened? If I fell off the roof and I'm hanging on the, you know, on on the gutter for dear life, you know what the first thing I would do? The first thing I would do, I wouldn't cry out for help. I would look around to make sure no one saw me. The first thing I would do is, I don't want to look like an idiot, like the idiot that climbs up for a $2 rocket, you know? I mean, the first thing I would do is look around because I'm embarrassed. I don't, want, and I don't think all personality types do that, just threes. And so uh, I, I don't know, but I would look around to see if anyone saw me, and I would try to muscle it up. I mean, I, I don't do that, but maybe I could, you know, try to muscle up and get up on top of that thing. I would try. But as my strength gave way, as my grip loosened, I would eventually cry out for help. So many of us are so embarrassed of our shortcomings and our sufferings. It's like we're hanging to the gutter of this life and we're just hoping people don't see. That only works if you can pull yourself up. But if this is true, you have to be drawn up. And until the Lord draws you up, you have a body that can come around and carry, Galatians 6, carry that burden for you. And yet we're so surprised by suffering. And we think we can handle it ourselves. We're embarrassed of the problems that might exist in our marriage so we don't invite God's people in to pray. 
We're embarrassed of the struggles that we have with whatever the addictive sin is in our life. So we don't invite God's people in to pray because no one else is sharing those sufferings. You know, when we do premarital counseling, you know, one way that we do it, and we, we want other people to do it. And so we have actually, you know, in this year, we had four other couples do premarital counseling in our church. I mean, um, is we want it to be couple on couple. We want to make the idea of coming to the table with another couple to talk about struggles or difficulties normal because that is what it is. It's normal. We've sat down with, with, with couples, you know, like in marriage kind of counseling, and when they talk about their problems, like it's never a situation like, whoa, that is freaky. I don't know how I can relate to that. There's always something in the base of it. There's always something like, yeah, I get it. But there's something in us that says, no, 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 hang on. You can muscle up by yourself. Don't let them know. You have to be drawn up. And in the meantime of being drawn up, God's people can gather around in Galatians 6 style and help carry you and pray for God to draw you up. This tells us so much about suffering. It is so has su- it has such deep polarity from anger to favor, moment, lifetime, evening, morning, weeping, rejoicing, sinking, drawing up. Like if you were just responding to this part of the text, it would be like, what am I the closest to? Is it anger? Is it sinking? Is it nighttime? Is it weeping? What am I the closest to? What do I need to ask for? But it doesn't just talk to us about the particulars of suffering. It also talks to us about the deceitfulness of self-sufficiency or prosperity. Like, we're going to do this really, really fast. This is like, what was David thinking? Like, it's like he gets to the end of verse five. He tells us what he's going to tell us. Like, man, God drew me up. It was incredible. He saved the day. I was weeping and crying and dying and I was descending down and he picked me up. And he's like, let me tell you the real story. And then he comes here in verse six. He says, this is how it all got started. Verse six, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. As for me, I said, I've got this. That is like the most famous words typically guys say, I've got this. And then it's like last words. Like I actually searched like famous last words. Don't search that. It's awful. Um, But like this idea, like David's thinking before everything went wrong was I'm in control. I'm in control. And yet he didn't say like his biggest enemy that made everything go wrong were enemies, sickness, and death. Like he mentioned those before, but he said what made everything go wrong was his belief in his prosperity, his belief in self-sufficiency, his belief that affluence, influence, and health will fix him. I tried so hard to find a word for health that sounded like affluence and influence. It doesn't exist. But those things are things that we seek, that we think, if I have those, I'll have a grip on this life and I'll be immovable. You know, we don't maybe use those words. We might use words like, gosh, man, if I was healthy, wealthy, and skinny, then everything would be fine. See, prosperity has a way of telling us that you've got this, but the problem is it lies. Charles Spurgeon, he writes this about prosperity. He says, we are never in greater danger than in the sunshine of prosperity to be always indulged of God and never to taste of trouble is rather a a token of God's neglect than of his tender love. 
You see, God brings affliction sometimes because he needs to know that us, like the prodigal son, if we have all the affluence, if we have all the influence and all the health that we ever need, we tend to run away from the father, not to run to the father. You know, but then it tells us in verse 7, kind of how David's thinking changed when everything started to go wrong and he started to cry out for help. It says, and so look, this kind of reads hard. It says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand and then you hid your face and I was dismayed. Like that kind of sounds like when I said I got this, God was like, good for you, but it's not. It's saying like, when I have God's favor, I can stand. But when God turns his face from me, that's when I'm dismayed. Like dismayed means that's when I'm distraught. That's when I'm upset. That's when I'm worried. That's when I'm hysterical. That's when I'm panicky. That's when it feels like I am descending and I can't stop it. Like that's how he was thinking. And so he cries for help. In verse 8, it says he pleads for mercy. In verse 9 through 10, he kind of starts to bargain with God. And I think sometimes we're like, oh, you shouldn't do that. I, I don't know. I mean, he says, hey, if I, if I go down to the dust, who's going to praise your name? Like, I, I don't know. There's actually prayers in my life right now that I'm like, hey, God, if you do this, I'll do that. Now, listen, God can say your plans are terrible. That, that's God's job, okay? God can do that. But I'm just saying, I, I surrender, man. If you make this opportunity, I'm going to do this thing. I'll do it. I think sometimes, I think sometimes offering supportive reasons for prayers to be answered, it strengthens faith. And God is God. He can tell you no. You could be wrong. But I think there's a way for him to say, listen, I want to praise you. Dust doesn't speak. You know, look at, and then we get to see David's thinking after everything went wrong. And look at it. It's basically saying, let's dance and sing. Look at verse 11. It says, you, God, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Like it's the great reversal. God stepped in and mourning becomes dancing. Like look at some of these words. I mean, you see dance, you see gladness, you see sing. Like, I wish I could do all of those things well. Like, I actually think I'm a pretty good dancer. I mean, not everyone agrees. But I think most of dancing has to do with uh, kind of facial expression and just like attitude, you know? And so, I mean, it's just, I, I, no one's, like, there's some people who are good. No one's really good. And so we prepare. It's dancing season. As the spring starts to warm up, we have family dance-offs. We prepare for dancing because dancing is supposed to kind of reflect the nature of the song. You know, I mean, whatever the song is, dancing is supposed to reflect the nature of the song. And so the question would be, what reflects the nature of God raising up when all despair was loosed in your life? What, is, what would movement reflect that? You know? The other is, is gladness. I actually think I'm really expressive. Like, it actually gets me in trouble because, like, I don't hide it very well. You know, someone does something stupid, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? And they know, they know what I'm thinking. I think I'm pretty good at joy. You know, I think I'm pretty good at like showing what I'm feeling. Like I could give you all of those different looks, you know, disgust. You know, I mean, that has a look, doubt, really. And then also the, huh, like, huh. I mean, that all has a look. 
And this says gladness. God can change whatever the expression of your soul is to gladness. Is your expression discontent? Is it disharmony? Is it jaded? Is it bitter? Is it always expecting the worst? See, God is the God of the great reversals. That's opposite. He can change that to gladness. Now, singing, I'm not very good at singing. Um, And that was really disappointing to all of Kinsey's family. When I met them all for the first time on the 4th of July, like 16 years ago, maybe 17, a long time ago, um, the first thing they asked, like, hey, do you play any instruments? Which is weird. That's That's a weird thing to ask. And I said, no. And they were so sad. <laughs> I mean, I felt like they were like, really, you bring this guy home? And they, were, they've have, they have kids to add to the hillbilly band, you know? I mean, they really do. And it's fun. And so, like, karaoke's a thing. All the parties have karaoke. And, like, I can't sing. Like, I am loud. But, like, when I start to sing with no one else, I don't know the pitch. I don't know where we are. So I just kind of guess at it. I just kind of stab at it. And so I made a stance. Like, I didn't want to be a stick in the mud. I never offer myself for karaoke, but I never turn it down. And so now it's a big hit. Like, oh, let's have Casey do a romantic duet. And so I'm always paired up with Kinsey's brother. He's really good at singing. And so Boys to Men comes out. And so he kind of leads in. It's kind of sexy. Sounds good. And then I get the next. And I kind of lead in. It's very, very different, but gets lots of laughs. And then we come together in the chorus. And so it just goes back and forth. It's a crowd favorite at my expense. <laughs> and I always think, like, we, you know, we have small kids, so we watch, like, Disney cartoons and, you know, I always think, man, you know, the, the two people in love, they sing a song together. And I'm like, Kinsey, one day we'll do that. It'll be a whole new world with new fantastic points of view. You know, I mean, one day we'll do that, but not today. But this says that it can turn us to sing. And I actually want to show what it says it can sing. Look at what it says. It says, with my glory. Now, glory means weight and density. It means all that you have. And so this is literally saying, all that I have can sing. That doesn't just mean the joy and the gladness. That means the sorrow and suffering. It can all sing to God's glory. It can all sing praises to God. And God is honored when we just bring what we have and we don't act like we're something that we're not. And we just say, this is all I've got to sing right now. This is all that I have, all of me. This is all that I have and I bring it. And so if God does bring affliction when we stand like, Lord, I don't know how this is working out. I don't know where you are in this, but I know that nothing comes to me that doesn't pass through your hand. And so if I had you stand against this or be still, I can still sing. Martin Luther, he calls that the alien work of God. Alien meaning distant and foreign. And he says, this is juxtaposed to the proper work of God. When God brings, and this is my word, or I stole from someone, when God brings violent grace upon your life, when there's affliction and suffering upon your life, it is God's alien work, not meaning that he doesn't do it. It means that he does it through other means, not meaning that it doesn't have purpose. It does have purpose, but he does it so then he can do his proper work in your life, which is proper work is the work of saving, of blessing, of lifting up, of being gracious and merciful. God's work will expose where you think you've got this and where you think you're self-sufficient to bring you 
past your self-sufficiency to a place of saving, of drawing and lifting up. And so wherever you are, be like, what does your song sound like? Will you sing? So far, David's song of faith for a dedication of God's presence to come in the temple is about suffering being certain. It's about self-sufficiency being uncertain. And it's about our God helping. Look at the words. Look at verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Our Lord, proper name of God, God. God, be my helper. Like we don't typically seem to think of like main person in charge, main CEO being my helper. And this is David crying out, God of the universe, I need you to be my helper. God, Lord of everything and my helper. And that's exactly what we need. In faith, David speaks of how God will ultimately help us. He's already said it. He'll draw us up. He'll stoop down. And he'll draw us up. And the hope of this passage, I think, is really resurrection. I think it's really resurrection. Look look at verses 1 through 3 again. Like, it doesn't say resurrection, but look, look at the terminology. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, raised me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried for help, and you have healed me. Like, you need healed if you're, like, sick or dying. And so you've helped, so you've healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought me up, my soul, from Sheol, restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Like, he's, the imagery is I am descending to death, and I need to be lifted up. Because of this imagery, a lot of people place this in his life. When David did the, sin, the census that, that was sinful and God comes to him and says, hey, there's going to be great suffering because of this. Because in your pride, you said, I've got this. I want to know how big my kingdom is, how big of a deal I am. I mean, you only do a census for taxation or for military purposes. You want to make sure everyone's paying up and everyone can serve and fight. And so, I mean, he did this and it was his like, certainty of I've got this. And God brought great suffering and great death. So David is asking for resurrecting help. And remember, like looking back at the superscript, this song's supposed to be sung in the dedication of a temple he never gets to see. I guess it's kind of weird. Like it's kind of strange. Like I was descending unto death and and God drew me up and I won't ever like say I got this anymore because if God turns his face from me, then I'm in trouble. Let's cut the ribbon and open up the temple. I guess that seems strange. Unless that's the primary work that God does when he intervenes in our life, where he meets us in the place of the temple where God and humanity intersect. Now, I just want to commend this. Jesus, in John 2, 19, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise, raise it up. And they all thought that he was talking about Herod's temple, but he wasn't. And it was later in John 2, 21, after the resurrection, they realized he was talking about the temple of his body. 
I think the, the New Testament directs us to read Psalms 30 with ultimate understanding that mankind was ultimately helped in the dedication of Jesus' body, his temple upon the cross. Jesus is the temple. He is the place where humanity meets God. He is the place where the work of God for the saving of people happens. He is the place of the great opposite work, of the great polarity, where death and dying turns to life, where sadness and weeping turns to joy, where sackcloth is exchanged for whatever clothing of gladness is. He is the place where darkness fell upon the earth, but mourning gave way. The light of God presents and welcomes us to the other side of the shadow of the valley of death. And now, listen to this if Jesus was saying this to God. Look at verse 9. What if Jesus was saying this? What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Like if that's coming off the lips of Jesus, it's saying this, if I only die and there's no resurrection, it's for nothing. In Christianity, there's so many things that are important to Christianity, but everything hinges on resurrection. The Apostle Paul, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we are fools above all. And yet, in our modern culture, we want to try to make, well, Christianity is really about being nice and being good to one another. And like, it's not. Like, you should be nice and be good to one another. Jesus was nice to you and he was good to you. But it's not. It's about resurrecting power from our greatest enemies that are constantly pulling. Sin, Satan, and death and the illusion of self-control, self-sufficiency that I've got this, it's constantly pulling down. And our only hope is a helper God who is the temple where God and mankind can meet to be resurrected. So then we can read verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Where do you need to ask God to help you? Or verse 11, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Just be honest, where do you need gladness? Or or verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise. If your all was singing right now, be honest. What does it sound like? See, when we put that church face on and we come like, hey, everything's cool. God is not like confused. He's like, man, you walked in, it really fixed a lot of stuff. Like the doubts that you have with your identity, the doubts that you have with the future, the doubts and the frustrations that you have, this is saying, with my glory, David's saying, I sing with my glory, all that I am, all that I'm here, that's gonna be a song to you. I think that was true of Jesus on the cross. Father, with all that I am, with all that I'm here, as the wrath of God was poured upon because our sins were laid upon Jesus, he says, I will sing of that glory. Don't let me just go to dust. Who's gonna sing of your praises then? But because Jesus didn't just go to dust, because he was raised up, we can now be drawn up and we can sing to the glory of God. What does your song sound like? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I, I think Psalms 30 directs us in so many ways, but I think one way that it directs us 
is to be honest about where we are. And Lord, in just a moment, as believers, those who trust and treasure in Jesus, we come forward in communion. It's a picture of us carrying what we actually have, to be honest about what we are, to bring it forth, that it might mingle, because what we actually have, the sufferings and sorrows that we actually have, were paid for upon the cross. Those weights have been carried by the strong Son of God, so now we can be drawn up. Now we can join in the resurrection song. So, Lord, I pray that we would have courage. And so with your heads down and your eyes closed, I'm just going gonna, gonna to ask you to just give you some direction. It's kind of the same direction every week, but one motion is coming forward to take communion. The way we take communion is we move when we're ready. We come, we start on the bread side, and we pull a piece of the bread away to remember the body of Christ that was busted up, that was broken for you. And we take it, we dip it into the wine or the grape juice. The, the wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice in the glassware. And remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you. He paid everything he had. And we do it to join the song of believers that trust and worship Jesus and trust in him for the resurrection of the dead that say our all is on him. But there's another motion. Another motion might be if you just need someone to pray for you, you might be grabbing someone you know around you to say, hey, listen, I need to be honest about where I really am. And maybe that prayer turns into a song. Or we'll have people in the back. They'll meet with you in the back and they can move in the hallway to pray with you. And I, I want you to tell, this is how we instruct them to pray. We instruct, we want them to pray in faith. We want them to ask for God to be the God of great opposites, to come in and to change and to move. We want to ask God to heal, whether that's physically, emotionally, or spiritually, that God would just move. And so they're going to pray for you like that. That prayer might sound like they're just weeping with you. It might sound like they're rejoicing with you, but they're just going to ask God for big things because we believe. We believe in promise. Or if you're unsure about Jesus, like you're with us and you're just unsure about what all this Jesus stuff is about, we'll have some, some prayers and some direction up on the screen. And that's just to give you rails, not to trick you. And it's also to tell you we've all been in that seat of kicking the tires on Jesus. And you won't stand out. Communion's chaotic. There's people sitting and moving and stepping. It's chaotic. And maybe that's best because as we worship God in this life and as we try to be faithful in this life, it's chaotic. Father, I pray that you would discern us in the right motion and we would be true to it. And Lord, you would teach us how to sing of all that we are. I follow, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.